right, good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 8. This morning, John chapter 8. This week, those of you who participated in the uh, Bible plan, Growing in Holiness, written by the late R.C. Sproul, noticed the special attention given to what Paul calls in Philippians as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That once you become a follower of Christ, you pass in that uh, inerasable line from the kingdom of darkness over to the kingdom of God and of light. That each day, as Paul says, we press on toward the goal that as the church we must be on guard that we don't get entangled into the things of this world. Rather, we are called to be nonconformists. Sproul wrote in the study, in other words, in every culture, Christian behavior is called to transcend the established patterns and customs of that particular society. In short, we are called to march to a different drum. And as I was studying this week in the Old Testament, I couldn't help but notice how God repeatedly calls his people to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Over and over again, it seemed to just keep popping up, and that's because sin is a really big deal to God. In fact, the New Testament that uh, the New Testament statement that kept kind of coming across to me, popping out of the pages of the Old Testament I read was purge the evil person from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. It's a phrase that the Apollo, Apostle Paul uses at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with regard to the importance of the church protecting itself from people who continue in unrepentant sin. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, God told the first man and first woman that they would surely die if they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They ate and they died. They were immediately separated from their creator as God drove them out of the paradise of the garden and eventually they died physically. And because of that sin, spiritual death as well as physical death was born. The seriousness of sin and its consequences of death is vividly pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. And in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Everyone, apart from the saving grace of Christ, will stand before a holy and just God, culpable of their own sin, and will be liable unto the judgment of God. As we return then to our study in John's Gospel this morning, sin is the overwhelming emphasis of today's verses, that you will die in your sins apart from believing in Jesus as the great I am the light that was sent into the world. The passage that we're going to be focusing on this morning is verses 21 through 30 of chapter 8. And they have such a, a weighty message related to, to sin and to death 
that Martin Luther once referred to this passage as a dreadful sermon, an appalling and dreadful word of farewell. And though I do agree with the sentiment, I think we'll also find in this truth the great hope of the world that has come to offer life and light to all those who will believe. Now these ten verses are really the, the second half of the conversation between Jesus and the re religious leaders that we began last week in verse 12. So in order for us to get the full context of Jesus' message, I want to start back in verse 12, and we'll read right down to verse 30, and then we can look at a little closer section by section. So let's begin today by starting in verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized them because his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said again to them, I go away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to say. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Here in this section of chapter 8, we must remember that Jesus is continuing a dialogue that began all the way back in chapter 7 with a group, group of Jews who had uh, gathered around Jesus in and around the temple during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the shadow then of this celebration, Jesus declares in verse 12 that he is the light 
of the world, a truth that John's gospel has been building upon since the opening words of his book. John clearly shows us that Jesus is the incarnate word of God who is the true light that gives life. And so here in verse 12, Jesus makes this monumental pronouncement as he declares himself to be the very name of God. I am the light. I am who I am has come. And he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God has not come into the world. Uh, God has come into the world to give life to dead people. So, as we saw last week, there is two ultimate responses to this revelation of Christ. Either you will follow him or you will be opposed to him. Ultimately, there is no middle ground. Those who follow Jesus will then pursue holiness because a change has taken place within the believer. And as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And as a result, those who follow the light of Christ will not only pursue holiness, but will experience true life in Christ. Not just in eternity with Christ, but this life that Jesus freely gives also speaks of a life more abundantly right now. Friends, you have new life in Christ. The light of Jesus shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. On the other hand, we saw these Pharisees. In verse 13 last week, they reject Jesus' claims. And those who oppose Jesus do so because they do not know God. Jesus said to them in verse 19, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus' claim was clear. He and the Father are one. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the God of the Bible. Now, as we advance then to our section today in verses 21 through 30, we'll see Jesus explain more fully the implications of failing to know him. And as Jesus points out, it has dire, eternal consequences. Now, as we were going through our text this morning, you might have noticed that Jesus seems to be repeating a similar thought we saw back in chapter 7, but with maybe a little more emphasis Back in chapter 7, I'll remind you, in verses 33 through 34, Jesus revealed that he would be with them for just a little while longer than he would go to him who sent him. Which he spoke of, yes, his coming crucifixion and ultimately his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Here in chapter 8, in verse 21, we see Jesus again saying he's leaving. But here he simply says, he is going away. As we will soon see, however, the Jewish leaders still have no idea what it is that he's talking about. Jesus continues on, though, and in the middle of verse 21, after stating he is going away, he says once again, you will seek me. It's the very same thing that Jesus said back in chapter 7. They would seek him, but they would not find him. Now, this doesn't mean that as soon as Jesus leaves that these Jews would suddenly begin to seek him to have a personal relationship 
with him. Rather, it means that they would continue looking for the Messiah, the one who Jesus himself is, the one whom they have failed to see. They would continue in an empty pursuit of trying to find hope in a deliverance apart from Jesus Christ, the light. They will continue in their unbelief, which is why Jesus then says in the middle of verse 21, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. These words, uh, they should shake every man apart from Christ to the core. And they also provide us our first of three points of this passage this morning. I want to bring to your attention point number one. Unless you believe in Jesus Christ, you will die in your sin. Remember that truth that we just read a few moments ago back in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 16. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. It's the same truth that is echoed for us in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 in the New Testament. For the wages of sin is death. The death that Jesus is talking about here is not just physical death. It is the spiritual prognosis of everyone who is apart from Christ. Spiritual death is eternal separation from the living God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul describes this spiritual death as being alienated from the life of God. We are all born spiritually dead. The theological term that's often used to describe this natural state is total depravity. We are totally depraved, corrupt in our sin, spiritually dead, dead so that as Ephesians 2 tells us we are by nature object of God's wrath. Jesus knew that these religious leaders would continue in the same state of unbelief in which they were born and therefore they would die in their sins. Now, not only do we see this in verse 21, but look down at verse 24 of chapter 8. Where Jesus repeats the same condemning statement, but in a slightly different way. Verse 24 says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, even though Jesus is reiterating the sort of same truth, there are two key differences between the statement in verse 21 and in verse 24. I want you to notice. The first thing I want us to take note of is the shift from the singular sin in verse 21 to sins, plural, in verse 24. The singular sin the Jews were guilty of in verse 21 likely refers to their sinful state in which all of us are born into. There's a more comprehensive description of the human disposition as a result of Adam's sin that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This is why the virgin birth and the incarnation is so important. Jesus not, did not inherit man's sin nature passed down through Adam, through man, but the rest of us, we are all born spiritually dead. And because of this inherited sinful depravity of the heart and apart from belief in Jesus, you will die physically in this spiritually then dead spiritual state. Verse 24 however, introduces another level of our sin problem by switching from sin to sins. Look at 
which refers to the actual transgressions, I believe, of the law, which we are all likewise guilty of. So sins here in John 8 refers to those things that we do that go against the commands of God, whereas sin is the state in which we are all born into. You put our sin then together with sins, and you see the double culpability of the human condition apart from Jesus Christ. We are in terrible trouble apart from Christ. Yet still, most people, if you ask today, if there is a God, and that's a big if, they'll say, but if there is a God, I'm sure I'm going to heaven, well, because I'm a good enough person. They live a good life, and from a worldly perspective, uh, there aren't many who would disagree with that statement, but the problem is the Bible presents a very different picture of the human condition. It says we are not born good people who are only then corrupted by our environments. All the way back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, God observed that every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And then, as the prophet Jeremiah pointed out to us, our hearts are deceitful above all things and are desperately wicked. In the New Testament, we read the same truth. We are all born sinners, separated from God, and condemned because of our sin and our sins. Back in John 3, you'll remember, in verse 18, we saw that the condemnation is because of our own failure before God. Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So you see, it doesn't matter how good you are. Whoever does not believe is condemned then already. Liable unto judgment for eternity. God is not condemning us. Our sin and our sins are condemning us. But praise be to God who is rich in mercy and has given us the only way then to pardon our sentence of death. And that leads us to the second key difference between verses 21 and 24 in chapter 8. Again, we see in verse 21, it says, you will die in your sin. Verse 24, however, it leaves us with one option to escape from eternal death sentence laid out before us. The second half of verse 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful news. This is glorious gospel truth. There is a way to escape. The only solution to the problem of sin and sins is belief, but not just any belief. Look at the object of faith there near the end of verse 24. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he. This is a very similar statement to, uh, that Jesus made to the Samaritan woman back in John chapter 4. The woman there understood there was something really special about this guy that she was talking to. And so she said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. It's as if she is saying, could you really be the one? And look how Jesus responded to her. I who speak to you am he. Now, interesting to know that both here in John chapter 4, but more clearly in John chapter 8, the pronoun he 
that's in our text is supplied by the translators to help us make more sense of it in the English, but it's not there in the original Greek. So what Jesus is really saying then in John chapter 8, verse 24 is, unless you believe that I am. So here again, we see Jesus take the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh, as he applies it to himself and is yet another example of over 20, uh, 20 divine claims in the Gospel of John alone that Jesus makes. In fact, we see at the end of chapter 8, Jesus leaves us no room to doubt his Davidic claim as one who thinks, I don't know, Nick, maybe you're stretching these together because Jesus declares at the end of verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And immediately, what do the Jews do? They go to pick up stones intending to stone him. Why? Because they understood that this was nothing less than a full claim of deity as Jesus once again takes that sacred name of God and he applies it to himself. So you see, it's not enough to believe that Jesus was just a good person or that Jesus was a good teacher or, or he was just a really good example no, you must believe in what Jesus said about himself and Jesus claimed over and over and over again that he is in fact from above and not from below. That he is the great I am who I am. Fully God and yet fully man. Who in power and authority was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures of the Messiah. Who through the incarnation came down to earth born under the law, lived a sinless life, laid down his own life willingly as the perfect atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God, thus providing the necessary payment for our sins, and he rose from the dead, defeating death, so that whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have eternal life. Remember, this is the whole purpose of John's gospel, John told us in chapter 20 of his gospel that Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. For the one who believes in Jesus, the penalty of sin then has been removed paid in full there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and if you have believed in Jesus by faith then Jesus has stepped in front of the firing squad for you he endured the judgment destined for you and I as he died upon that cross and he guaranteed the hope of the resurrection then from raising from death to life there is new life in Christ, but you must believe. Believe in Jesus today by confessing to God that you are a sinner through word and through deed and ask him to save you from the penalty of sin, which is death, that you owe because of your sin. And for those of us who have believed this first point, it's a monumental significance then in our lives because it shows us how we ought to live with a, a great urgency in the midst of this dark world we must be continually reminded that unless our children believe in Jesus they will die in their sins that unless our spouse believes Jesus is the Christ they will die in their sins 
that unless our best friend in the whole world believes Jesus is the Son of God, they will die in their sins. There is an urgency then to the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus proclaimed here that these Jews who did not know him nor his father would die in their sins. And he knew that. He was about to return to his father in heaven and those who stood opposed to him would never be able to join him there because they were blinded by their sin and therefore they did not believe Jesus is the Christ or the Son of God and consequently told them there at the end of verse 21, where I am going, you cannot come. And this is why Martin Luther refers to this text as a dreadful sermon. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an almighty and just God. Back in chapter 1, verse 11 of John, we read that Jesus came to his own Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him. And this is once again what we're seeing here in chapter 8. Jesus came to his own. He came to his own people of Israel, whom he spent much of his ministry focused upon, yet they not only did not receive him, they ultimately killed him because they loved their sin and they did not want to see it exposed by the light. These were highly religious people. These were people who, through their own works, believed they lived righteous and good lives. These were people who tried to put on a good face in front of others, and they rejected Jesus for fear that their evil deeds would be exposed. It's just as Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. And look at why they won't come to the light. For fear that his deeds will be exposed. Kind of like when you lift up the big rock and all the bugs go running from the light. Right? They were unwilling to come to Christ out of fear, this says. Hmm. What did they fear? Huh. I guess maybe being exposed as hypocrites, for starters. Because then all people that they had power over, since they used the law of God as a weapon against those people, then they might now think less of them if they were to confess they were all actually sinners as well. I think one of the chief concerns of John's gospel then, besides leading us to believe, is to root out false belief. As we've already seen John address the difference between true and false belief, you'll remember it was back at the end of chapter 2, we saw Jesus on his part not trust himself to them because he knew all men. He knew what was in man. In chapter 6, we saw those who were initially interested in Christ. They were called disciples in chapter 6, followers under the teaching of our Lord. They were drawn by the crowd. They were drawn by the supernatural, of course. But when Jesus spoke, ah, this is a hard saying. Who, who can listen to this? And the Bible says many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We'll see more exposure of true and false belief a little later in chapter 8 as well. So to set the stage for it, Jesus continues here in verse 22 and following. and gives us three evidences I think we can see here of unbelief. 
three evidences of unbelief. So, point number one, unless you believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. Point number two, we see evidence of unbelief. Uh, The Jews are once again confused by Jesus' statement at the end of verse 21 when he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Look now at their response in verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. (laughs) Now again, this is very similar to how they responded back in chapter 7 and in verse 35. When they were so confused about if Jesus was talking about leaving them and was he really going to go to the dispersa and speak to the Greeks? Why would he go and do that? Here, though, they respond with a a whole other spin on Jesus' statement by suggesting that Jesus is contemplating suicide. I mean, this really shows the demonic spell that they were under. Uh, For being religious leaders, they sure had an unhealthy preoccupation with Jesus dying. But of course, the irony is found in the fact that they were the ones who were seeking to kill him. We saw it back in chapter 5. We saw it in chapter 7. It was so well known that all the local residents knew that the leaders wanted Jesus dead. Nevertheless, since the Jews were walking in the darkness of their unbelief, they simply could not understand that Jesus was speaking of returning to his heavenly father in heaven. So whether just in their blindness or possibly in sarcasm, uh, mockery, whatever, they assert Jesus must have been speaking of hell since they knew after all, we as the religious leaders of Israel, we certainly would never end up there. And really, whatever their intention, their response reveals an underlying self-righteousness that is grounded in unbelief. So evidence number one of unbelief, self-righteousness. These religious leaders thought they could never go to hell because they lived good lives. At least they tried to live their lives according to the law. This Jesus, on the other hand, uh, he healed a man on the Sabbath. Uh, He's constantly challenging us. Doesn't he know who we are? Uh, And don't forget what he did to our precious temple when he went and scared off all the money changers and flipped off the tables. He's a blasphemer. He makes himself equal with God. Certainly they thought, well, he's going to pay for that. He'll be going to hell. But the sad reality was that their own self-righteousness had deceived and blinded them to the truth. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the apostle Peter preached the first sermon in Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter revealed in that sermon that it was, in fact, some of these very same Jewish leaders who had killed Jesus, Peter said at the end of verse 23, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we'll see more about how Jesus willingly gave up his own life in chapter 10, Lord willing, we get there. But for now, this short interaction in verse 22 continues to reveal the Pharisees' self-righteousness and it exposes uh, the impotence of their religious rules that they had created and added on to God's holy law for the people to follow. These rules had deceived people into thinking that they could somehow earn merit before God by following these lists of good deeds that they did. Yet the consistent pattern all throughout scripture is that God's promises are never received through our own righteousness. 
one of the verses that stuck out to me this week was in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 6. In fact, all chapter 9 of Deuteronomy. If you read it, you'll see. But just before the Lord led the nation of Israel to the promised land, he said to them, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Isaiah 64, verse 6, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. But in God's ultimate mercy, he alone made a way for us to be righteous. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. Friends, what self-righteous deeds are you still relying on today to try to earn favor before God? Are you resting on an empty confession or a hollow prayer with little or no fruit that backs up your claim? Are you trusting in your moralism as a means to try to be right with God? Isaiah says it's not worth it. It's all filthy rags. It's all rubbish apart from the righteousness of Christ given freely by means of faith. The first evidence then of unbelief, self-righteousness. The second evidence of unbelief is worldly identity. Worldly identity. And this speaks to what we were speaking about right before service started. You'll see the connection on what we're talking about. Jesus cuts right through the confusion of the religious leaders, and he explains the, the great divide then that exists between his position and their position. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now, the word here used for world is, is, uh, for world is a really important New Testament um, term. The word Jesus uses here is cosmos. It refers to the invisible spiritual system of evil that opposes the kingdom of God. And yes, it's controlled by Satan. The cosmos is under the dominion of Satan. The religious leaders of Israel are firmly wrapped up in the world's system. And notice it was considered by all around them as the good moral system of the day. Yet it was still the system of the world and thus their identity is wrapped up in the world's system. Later in John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And Jesus experienced this firsthand. He was not of the world, so the world hated him. Jesus is from above. His citizenship is in heaven. Likewise, everyone who truly believes in Christ has been adopted by God, transferred from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say with great confidence to the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you continually find yourself focused on 
and defined by the labels of this world, if you find yourself focused on and defined by the number of letters there before your name, if the amount of money is in your account is what you are defined by, the nation in which you reside, the color of your skin, the awards that you won, the family that you have, watch out that you are not consumed by a worldly identity. If you are in Christ, then Christ is your life. The third evidence then of unbelief is based on the question in verse 25, when the religious leaders ask, who are you? Who are you? Now, this does not appear to be an innocent inquiry. It's the same exact question the Jewish leaders asked John the Baptist back in chapter 1, verse 19. They weren't asking about John the Baptist's family heritage or his family. They weren't asking him uh, his name. They wanted to know the source of his message. In other words, on whose authority and power that he dared to come and call people to be baptized for the repentance of their sins. It's the same question here that they're asking of Jesus. Who do you think you are? We run things around here, and there's a very specific current to our society that we have established in Jesus. You are swimming against that current. The third evidence, then, of unbelief is prideful ignorance. Jesus has gone above and beyond to show them and to tell them who exactly he is. He is the light of the world. By works, by deed, by word, in fact, that's exactly what Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 25. I'm exactly who I've been telling you that I am. What have I been saying to you from the beginning, Jesus says? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Jesus is saying, all you have ever done is fight me with your prideful ignorance. I have come from the Father who is true. The statement he has made over and over again to this group. They are blinded, though, by their sins. They do not understand what Jesus is saying. And in verse 27, we read, they did not realize that Jesus had been speaking to them about the Father. Why did they not understand? Verse 43, Jesus tells them why. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he lies. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Imagine saying this to the religious leaders. Wow. So while they can't understand him now, there is coming a time when they will, and this is what Jesus points out now in the final section of our verses today, and this is our final point, point number three, is everyone will know Jesus is the I am. Everyone will know Jesus is the I am. Look at verse 27. It says, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up 
the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Jesus being lifted up here refers, yes, primarily to his crucifixion. It's the same language Jesus has already used back in chapter 3, verse 14, speaking with Nicodemus. Jesus, uh, Jesus said uh, to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Here, Jesus is prophesying once again that he would be lifted up so that the Jews would know, but sadly, they still would not believe. They would refuse to look and live. But there's another aspect of Jesus being lifted up here, and that also refers to his going to the Father, his ultimate exaltation. So when Jesus rose from the dead, uh, he was seated at the right hand of God the Father, meaning the place of all power and authority, where he now serves as our medi mediator between God and man, where Jesus is now hand-delivering the prayers of the saints by the power of the Spirit to God the Father. Uh, that's why, of course, we pray in the name of Jesus because he has been given the name that is above every name. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And one day, one day, as Don read earlier, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see then a great picture of salvation as we bow down before him, acknowledging him as Lord indeed. And one day every knee will bow and everyone will know that Jesus is the great I am. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, verse 30 says, many came to believe in him. Perhaps today God is even now opening up your eyes so that you can respond to Jesus and see Jesus for who he truly is. And then let me tell you something else, that no sin is greater than the wide-encompassing grace of Jesus Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No sin too deep, no sin too wide. Call out to him today. Look to Jesus and live. If uh, this morning you need the prayers of the church, we'll have men and women down front here who would be happy and love to pray with you. Would everyone else please stand and sing the song of invitation. There is victory in Jesus.